Hello, and welcome to Stars, Cells, and God, the show where we discuss new discoveries taking place at the frontiers of science that have theological and philosophical implications, as well as new discoveries that point to the reality of God's existence. My name is Hugh Ross, and today I'll be your guide as we explore the topic. Well, we got two topics today. Father Jeff, are you going to be talking about the black hole that they were able to image with the Event Horizon Telescope? And I'm going to also be doing an astronomical one talking about a project uh, to image uh, supernova eruptions in the very distant and early parts of the universe. Before we get into the discussion, I wanted to encourage you to subscribe to our channel, the Reasons to Believe channel, and click on the bell icon so you can be informed of our new videos. We release new episodes every Thursday, and our website, reasons.org, is full of excellent resources on a variety of topics. Learn more at reasons.org or by following us on social media at rtb underscore official. And if you're not already a subscriber, please subscribe to the RTB YouTube channel. Well, with that, uh, let me jump into uh, a discovery I've got here. Uh, this was published in the Astrophysical Journal, and it's about a mission to try to measure the Hubble constant, which is a constant that basically describes the expansion uh, of the uh, universe. And uh, it's getting into the topic of how astronomers have been able to make uh, quite precise measurements of the cosmic expansion rate uh, during, say, the first nine, uh, even 10 billion years of the history of the universe, but it's been a great challenge to try to measure it for early periods of the universe. And astronomers for decades have been wanting to find some way that they can measure the cosmic expansion rate uh, during, say, the first four billion years of the existence of the universe. And this paper is basically making a proposal of how this can be done in the relatively near future. And the bottom line is this is going to yield a more detailed uh, cosmic creation model than we've had before. And, of course, if we can develop a more cos detailed cosmic creation model, we can see how well it matches what the Bible describes about the beginning and history of the universe. So this is real potential for uh, strengthening the case for the Christian faith and the God of the Bible. Well, I'll leave this slide here, which is just simply a reminder that both Jeff and I have a Facebook and Twitter page. And, hey, if questions come up after you hear Jeff's discussion, feel free to contact him on Facebook and Twitter. He will take and answer your questions. I do the same thing on my Facebook and uh, Twitter uh, pages. And many of you may have heard, uh, you know, and Jeff, uh, I think you've gotten questions about this too, how there's this tension in trying to measure the cosmic expansion rate. You've got a measurement from the very early part of the universe based on the cosmic background radiation measurements, but it's been in tension with measurements based on Cepheid variable stars. And, uh, you know, I wrote a blog, oh gee, about a year ago talking about how astronomers are trying to uh, relieve this tension. Mm -hmm. And the tension is, based on the cosmic microwave background radiation, you get a slightly lower value of the rate at which the universe is expanding than you do based on Cepheid variable stars. But an astronomer that I actually went to graduate school with, uh, Barry Medor, uh, he and his team have said, well, why don't we look at uh, a new way 
of measuring the cosmic expansion rate uh, when the universe is at its late stage, like in the present. And uh, they looked at, uh, you know, tip of the red giant branch stars. And I won't go into the details, but these are stars like Cepheid variables uh, where you can determine its absolute luminosity. The luminosity is actually radiating at. And so if you know the absolute luminosity, this helps you to get a measure of its distance. Well, and, and just, I mean, just to get a, a, a why, why you're going that way is, you know, Cepheid variables are these really cool stars that their pulsation it tells you how bright they are. Right. The challenge is they're single stars and they're relatively normal stars, so they're not particularly bright. So the further you away you look, the harder they are to image or the harder they are to see an individual star, whereas red giant branch stars are, are bigger, so they're much brighter, which allows you to see them further away which means you can look further back in cosmic time and get closer to. So instead of just measuring more recently with the Cepheid variables, more ancient with the cosmic microwave background, you can kind of fill that gap in between. Right, and they also show up up close, so you get a way of... Uh, right. But uh, what Barry Medore's team was, like Wendy Freeman and Barry Medore, they're a couple, they headed up this research program. They said, we suspect the tip of the red giant branch stars are going to have less systematic effects than Cepheid variable stars. So this is what they came up with in their paper, which basically shows you that the discrepancy you see between Cepheid variable stars and the cosmic microwave background radiation is significantly relieved if you try to measure the cosmic expansion rate using tip of the red giant branch. Well, so, so why do you say it's relieved? Because what I would read out of that is when you measure it with the cosmic microwave background radiation, you get a lower value. When you measure it with the Cepheids, you get a higher value. And when you measure it with the red giant, you get a value in the middle. That just says, here's a third measurement that doesn't agree with anything we have. True, but my point is, and that's what they said in the paper, the tip of the red giant branch, even though you got a greater spread in the statistical errors, notice that it's closer to the measurements that you get with the cosmic microwave background radiation. And kind of what they did at the end of their paper saying, we think by looking at you know, different kinds of uh, objects uh, to measure the cosmic expansion rate, we can get a better handle on the systematics. And if you can eliminate the systematics, and for people not aware of that term, a systematic effect is something usually in your instrument that shifts all the measurements up or all the measurements down, uh, whereas the statistical errors is simply the spread of the measurements uh, that you get. And so what this is showing is that the cosmic microwave background radiation, the Cepheid variable technique, and the tip of the red giant branch probably have different systematic effects. And so the bottom line is if we can find some additional ways of measuring the cosmic expansion rate, maybe we can resolve uh, this apparent discrepancy. But well, so, so so there's, I mean, it looks like there's two things that could be going on here. One is that we're using the cosmic microwave background radiation, which is at an earlier epoch, and the Cepheids at a later epoch, and there's actually some physics going on that we don't understand. So we're making measurements of things that we think ought to be the same, but there's something else going on. So there could be new physics. Certainly. Or... It could be that the Cepheids have a systematic error and the cosmic microwave background radiation has a systematic error that even though they are measuring the same thing, they look different. And so if, what, if, if the red giant branch is 
kind of a different systematic or, you know, that would be saying, all right, we've got to find out what these two systematics are and bring them in line. So which, I mean, I'm just curious, which do you think is going on? Do you think there's I new think physics here? Or? Well, then again, this is addressed in the paper. They're saying, well, given that we have confidence that dark energy is a dominant component of the universe, that will imply that the universe will be expanding at a slower rate when the universe is young than when, it, when it's old. They also address another possible effect, that if our solar system and our Milky Way galaxy is in an under-dense region of the universe, that's going to cause the cosmic expansion rate to look larger uh, when we're looking at galaxies that are within that void. Mm -hmm. And they're basically saying, we think both effects are in play here. But the bottom line is they were saying, even if we take into account the fact that dark energy is going to change the measurements a little bit uh, and you know, make the universe expand slower when it's young and that we're in a local void, uh, that's going to make measurements in local universe a little higher than it would be the average for the universe. Even taking into account uh, those two systematics, we still can't resolve the difference between the Cepheid variable stars and the cosmic microwave background radiation. But they said, with those two effects, we can resolve the difference between the tip of the red giant branch and the cosmic microwave background radiation. Mm -hmm. So uh, taking into account those two known systematics, I mean, no one doubts those systematics, uh, we can resolve it if we ignore the Cepheid variables. But the bottom line is astronomers are still interested. Okay, we'd like to know clearly there's a systematic effect because notice the Cepheid variable measurement is distinct from the tip of the red mm -hmm. giant branch. They're both measuring the cosmic expansion of the universe when the universe is uh, in its present state. Right. So clearly there's something there's systematic. There's something systematic going on there. There's yeah. something going on. And uh, so what this paper is talking about is, well, if we can get a handle on what's happening with some precision in the early part of the universe, not just for galaxies, say, a billion light years away, but look at galaxies that are 10, 11, 12, 13 billion light years away. That'll help us understand, because some people are speculating, maybe there's unknown physics mm -hmm. beyond uh, just what we'd expect from dark energy and dark matter. Right. And so, but in order to unveil that, we really need to find a way to measure the cosmic expansion rate uh, when the universe is much younger than what we see around us. You know, I, th I think uh, this discussion uh, reminds me of the just the bigger context in which this has gone on. Because you know, you're you're older than I am doing this, but even I'm when I was first going through graduate school, the idea of quibbling between 65 and 75 on the Hubble constant was just a ludicrous idea because we were quibbling between 50 and 100. Right. And there were these really good low statistical error measurements of the Hubble constant that were 100 and equally good low statistical error measurements of 50. And in fact, that's why the Hubble Space Telescope was built, was to resolve that tension, if you will. And, you know, the, I mean, the two things that stand out to me, one is that uh, we were, able, you know, the, it was kind of almost right in the middle. And, you know, 50 and 100, and we're talking about 70, or 65, 70 here. So both of them had these systematic errors that we now have resolved down. And it looked like for a long time they were in agreement. And because our measurements are so good now, we are now seeing a 
uh, discrepancy that we weren't even aware of before. Uh, you know, and I know you've mentioned that before that, you know, every time you solve a problem, you kind of open up two or three new ones. And this is just a kind of a prime example of that in my assessment, because we solved this big problem of, is it 50 or a hundred? Well, it's 70, except is it 65 or 68 or is it 72? Well, now? So. <laughs> thanks for bringing that up, Jeff, because yeah, I'm a little bit older than you are. And when I was an undergraduate, I was reading Alan Sandage's papers where he was basically pushing for 50 mm -hmm. kilometers per second uh, per megaparsec for the uh, expansion rate. Uh, but when I went to grad school, I was being trained by Sidney Vandenberg. Mm -hmm. He was pushing the 100. Right. And there was this big battle going on between Sidney Vandenberg and uh, you know Alan Sandage, and it literally took 20 years mm -hmm. uh, for those two. And they never really got close together. They got closer. I remember when Sidney said, I'll go down as low as 80. And uh, Alan said, I'll go as high as 60. It still was a 20. <laughs> yeah, fair point, yeah. But now we're down to a discrepancy of four. Mm -hmm. There's only a difference of four kilometers per second per megaparsec yeah. between the lowest measurements and the highest measurements. And uh, basically what Barry Medor and Wendy Friedman were saying is if we ignore the Cepheid variables, we got the problem solved. Because we know yeah, these two systems. cheating, though. You it is cheating. <laughs> As I point out that we still want to know what's going on with the Cepheid <laughs> okay. variables, and maybe there's something going on we're not seeing right. with the tip of the red giant branch, and maybe there's something we're not seeing in the early history of the universe. Right. Uh, and, you know, another factor in this, in fact, I got a second blog in this where I said, well, we also have baryon acoustic oscillations, mm -hmm. which gives us an independent measure. And basically it was an agreement uh, with the tip of the red giant branch. So it's additional evidence that the problem probably lies with the Cepheid variable stars because you've got both the uh, uh, baryon acoustic oscillations and the tip of the red giant branch giving essentially the same number, mm -hmm. uh, which is resolvable within the cosmic microwave background radiation. But there's still, as you know, physicists and astronomers saying, we're hoping to discover some unknown physics. Because mm -hmm. after all, that would be a Nobel Prize winning discovery, right? Well, and that would be interesting too. So, sure. <laughs> you know, it's, I, I just think it's worth pointing out that, uh, you know, science is often kind of presented, presented uh, at least at, at, a, at a popular level as kind of this kind of monolithic, you know, everybody does all the experiments, we all agree on the data, you know, it, it comes out and, you know, we've got this nice clean answer. And most of my scientific history has been, well, this group does this and we get this result, this group does this, and how do we figure out what's wrong there? I mean, even in, when I was in graduate school, uh, we had two groups that were working on simulations of the Crab Nebula and its gamma ray flux and how do you extract energy spectra. And one group got it and did X and one group got it and did Y and they weren't the same. And so we spent year, you know, at least two years, if not more, trying to iron out what it was, what, what, what the discrepancies were. And we found errors in both methods. And eventually we kind of converged on a method. And, and why that was important, or at least one of the reasons why that was important, is that when we now come out and we say, all right, we've got this energy spectra, we're convinced that we've, we've thought about all these things that could be wrong, worked, and, you know, some of them weren't a problem, some of them were, but we've now ironed out, and it's this result it's that tension that actually working through that tension and fighting through all the details and trying to figure out and do all the hard measurements is what gives us confidence that we now have a good result when we publish them. Well, this is actually significant for the Christian faith because, again, if we go back 
to when you got one group saying 50 kilometers per second, other groups saying 100. Mm-hmm. You had people like young earth creationists and you had atheists saying, hey, with that kind of discrepancy, maybe the Big Bang model isn't correct. Right. And so people were saying, maybe the Bible got it wrong on what is said about the origin and history of the universe. But what we've seen over the past uh, 60 years is that the discrepancy has gotten smaller mm-hmm. and smaller and smaller, which is increasing our confidence that the Bible's model on cosmic creation indeed is correct. And the significance of that is thousands of years ago, the Bible was the only written book that was saying, hey, there's a real beginning to the universe mm-hmm. that includes a beginning of space and time. The laws of physics don't change. There's this pervasive law of decay. The universe is expanding. These are all the fundamentals of the hot Big Bang uh, creation model. And what I'm basically suggesting here, we now have the potential basically to eliminate all possible discrepancies. Although you could also argue that'll never happen. The discrepancies simply get smaller and smaller and smaller. Well, and, and it and gets to a point where they're <laughs> inconsequential. Well, I, w- I would argue sometimes the discrepancies show up in other ways because the difference, is, I mean, I, I'm, I'm I'm going to draw a blank. I just know that the 50 and the 100 were looking at two different types of objects and measuring right, the expansion right. rate. The discrepancy we're talking about here is not two different types of objects. It's the Cepheids and the cosmic microwave background radiation, which are, you know, it, that cosmic microwave background radiation didn't even exist because we couldn't measure the cosmic microwave background radiation in a way that would give this value. Right, and so. Right. Um, you know, when we discover new things, often it, it's it, there's new things that come up that cause new discrepancies. But I, I have, agree with your point. I, I'm curious how you it, it, the question that arises in my mind. I think other people may ask it. Is, you know, you're talking about how this allows you to get a better cosmic creation model and align it with the Bible. I don't find anywhere in the Bible where it talks about a discrepancy between 50 or 75 or what the expansion rate is. Yeah. So how does that help us get a better picture of what the, what the Bible yeah, has the to say? The Bible doesn't give you a number on the age of the universe or the cosmic expansion rate. But the fact that we can measure the cosmic expansion rate um, you know, and the age of the universe uh, does give you greater confidence. Hey, the Bible got it right mm-hmm. when it said there's a beginning in finite time. And so that helps. And the fact that the Bible predicted that the universe expands continuously throughout its history, that it gets colder and colder as it gets older and older, implied by its statements about physics and uh, thermodynamics. And so it basically increases our confidence. Say what the Bible said thousands of years ago, and keep in mind the Bible is alone in making those statements. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, here's the Bible predicting accurately thousands of years ahead of time what astronomers are discovering and uh you know the more uh detailed model we can get i think the greater confidence it builds that the bible's got it right because because what i've been seeing over the decades uh jeff is a smaller and smaller percentage of astrophysicists saying we have to abandon the big bang model Mm -hmm. and even what i noticed 60 years ago they were basically saying that not for scientific reasons, but for philosophical mm-hmm. reasons. Hey, this means there's a God. And so the fact that we can squish them into a smaller space of speculation strengthens the case 
okay. uh, for the Christian faith. So this is less about, ooh, we're finding details about creation that the you know, extracting new details about what creation says, but there are certain, you know, maybe a smaller number, but very definitive or, or strong statements the Bible makes about the way our universe is. And so the fact that we're resolving those discrepancies in that picture of what of, of Big Bang cosmology that aligns with what Scripture says, says that provides the evidence for Scripture. It does. I could put it another way, too. The fact that the debate has shifted from is a Big Bang, steady state, or oscillating, the debate is now, well, what kind mm-hmm. of a Big Bang model are we looking at? Right. Uh, is it adjusted by Mond? Uh, is there some other things we're not seeing? So the fact that the debate has shifted, in fact, I could argue that debate is really now not over what kind of Big Bang, but over what kind of Lambda CDM Big Bang model mm-hmm. we're looking at. And so that's another piece of evidence. The fact that we're seeing the scientific community narrowing into a smaller and smaller uh, class and a more detailed class of cosmic creation models, again, makes a case, hey, the more we learn about the universe, uh, the stronger case we're getting uh, for what the Bible states about creation. You know, there's another parallel that I find intriguing is that uh, you know, if you compare what we know about the universe today to what we knew 400 years ago, there's so much more where we've got a lot of the big picture details ironed out there. I mean, there's just a lot that we know that we talked about but really weren't confident or have any evidence for one way or the other 400 years ago. Well, that's okay. So that all we know, now there are these new problems that come up, and these new problems almost, they seem to get increasingly hard to solve. Uh, you know, I mean, we're talking about stuff that we've been working on for 40, 50 years. You know, you talk about dark matter. We've known about that for 80 years and still don't really know what it is. Uh, they're kind of important details, but they're also very difficult details to understand and iron out. And I find a parallel when we look at our, our studying scripture, because the big picture really is strong and compelling of what scripture has to say. But there are also all of these interesting, fascinating questions that all, you only see when you've got the big picture in place. And that's right. kind of what I see going on in our study no, that's of creation exactly as well. Right. Yeah. And we should expect that it'll get more difficult mm-hmm. because uh, we're going into finer details. Right. And it's going to get more expensive, too. Notice how much more money we've got to spend to make these discoveries. Fair Although, point. Fair point. <laughs> what I find interesting about this paper, though, Jeff, is they found a relatively inexpensive way because uh, people are saying maybe we're going to have to put up a whole bunch of really large space telescopes. And this paper is basically saying, well, that would be nice, but here's a cheaper and faster way to make it happen. And let me kind of jump into this, uh, but this has been fun. And by the way, if people want to read an article I've written about resolving the cosmic expansion rate anomaly, it's in a blog I wrote on April 6, 2020, and I also got a follow-up in uh, 2021. But where this paper is going is, you know, rather than putting into orbit or somewhere up where the James Webb Space Telescope is, a very expensive space telescope, let's use natural telescopes. And they're basically referring to what astronomers call gravitational lenses, uh, where, you know, you've got planet Earth there at the bottom left, and, uh, you know, what you're doing is uh, using an intervening cluster of galaxies, and sometimes it works if you've got a really big, giant galaxy. Mm-hmm. That can be adequate. But either a giant galaxy or a big cluster of galaxies, and uh, Einstein's theory of general relativity says 
when a beam of light goes by a massive body, the beam of light gets bent. Mm -hmm. And so this actually uh, operates as a lens. And uh, these gravitational lenses uh, can be quite powerful. Uh, they literally can magnify uh, the light of a distant uh, background galaxy by thousands of times. And so you know, you've got your telescope on Earth, but you've got an intervening natural telescope mm -hmm. that can significantly, basically allows you to see objects much more distant than be possible right. if you didn't have that gravitational lens. However, as we've been talking about, if you really want to measure the cosmic expansion rate, you need standard candles, Cepheid variables, where if you know the periodis, the period of the uh, variation, you know the absolute luminosity. Mm -hmm. uh, or like if you view the tip of the red giant branch star, that gives you a handle. And another object, unfortunately, is very bright, is a type 1a supernova mm -hmm. eruption. Uh, type 1a supernova eruptions, uh, they all indicate the same intrinsic brightness. Right. And so if you can detect the light of a, a type 1a supernova when it's at maximum light, when it's brightest, uh, you can use that brightness to determine how far away it is. Mm -hmm. And then by measuring the redshift, you get a measure, you know, the distance and the redshift, you get a measure of the cosmic expansion rate. So... Uh, and what this, uh, this group of authors is basically saying, hey, uh, we can use this gravitational lensing technique to detect type 1a supernova in very distant galaxies. Mm -hmm. But they said the advantage is you're looking so far away in the universe, so far back in time, uh, that the cosmic expansion rate, the redshift, uh, actually gives you a time delay uh, in the uh, period of the supernova eruption. <coughs> mm -hmm. Excuse me. Because, you know, if a supernova erupts in our galaxy, it takes roughly seven months to go from its normal brightness to maximum brightness back down to what it mm -hmm. had before. Uh, but given that the universe is expanding, and the farther away you observe, the faster the universe appears to be expanding relative to us, that means that you can look far enough away uh, where the recession velocity is a significant fraction of the velocity of light, which means you're going to get a time delay, mm -hmm. a relativistic time dilation. So they're saying that gives us an independent measure of the distance of the supernova. Because uh, you know, if it takes nine months instead of seven months uh, and we got the redshift, uh, you know, that independently uh, gives us the right. distance. Now, if you're talking just one supernova, you're not going to get a very accurate measure. Mm -hmm. But they're saying if we can get 100 plus, then we can statistically average, and that will actually give us, uh, you know, good uh, distance measurements. Right. <coughs> Excuse me. And the other advantage is if you happen to have a cluster of galaxies as the gravitational lens the supernova eruption uh, could take a different light path mm -hmm. if it's being bent by one of the galaxies in the cluster as opposed to another one. Right. And this has actually been observed uh, where we see a supernova eruption that's been gravitationally lens. And uh, here on Earth with our telescopes, we see the eruption uh, three times mm -hmm. uh, because it gets lensed by you know three different pathways where you've got a different uh, 
length of uh, travel time uh, for the light wave to make. Well, and, and it also shows up as three different images on there, too. So it's not like this one image has three different images mapped on it. It no, actually, actually shows up as three different places. Yeah. Yes, they're, they're spatially separated. And so what this paper is basically saying, you know, we need to seriously think about doing uh, a big survey where we search for type 1a supernova that are gravitationally lens. Mm -hmm. And they're saying, this isn't difficult. We already have seen some. And uh, we have actually seen one where we saw a supernova eruption uh, at three different times over a two and a half year period. Because right. it took different pathways to get here because of the intervening cluster of galaxies. Mm -hmm. And so they're basically proposing, and let me bring up the next slide here. This actually shows you what a gravitational lens can do. So you got this intervening giant galaxy, and there's a background galaxy behind it, and the lens, uh, the gravitational lens, basically takes that single galaxy and turns it into a ring uh, around uh, the gravitational lens. So the blue ring you see there, that's a single galaxy. Mm -hmm. And actually look at it, you get the detailed structure of that galaxy. So it's one of the more spectacular gravitational, uh, and this basically shows you what a supernova is like. This is a nearby uh, supernova, uh, but here you see the supernova at the bottom left, which it gets bright and fades away. So that's what astronomers do. They basically see this big bright light, and at maximum brightness, a type 1a supernova can be as bright as the rest of the galaxy right. uh, that's hosting it. <coughs> and uh, this basically shows you the supernova clock, uh, where it takes roughly seven months to go from before eruption to maximum eruption, and then back down to where it fades from view. Uh, this is needs to be adjusted because this paper is actually referring to a paper that was published just a year ago, where it said based on the latest type 1a supernova measurements, the rise uh, from uh, what you see at the bottom left to the peak, they now know it's just 18 days. Mm -hmm. So this basically shows you at about 25 days. So yeah, adjust, it's a little more dramatic and uh, coming up in uh, just uh, 18 days. So, uh, and then, uh, So yeah, if the supernova erupts, say, a million light years away, it takes about seven months to go through its uh, you know, light variation. If it's six billion light years away, it takes nine months. 11 billion light years away, 11 months. Uh, these are rough numbers, but the whole point is if we were to get, say, 100 to 200 detections of uh, these distant uh, supernova eruptions, uh, then uh, we can actually get uh, a good handle on the cosmic expansion rate when the universe is, say, between 10 and 13.8 billion uh, light years away. And uh, for those that are interested in the young Earth, old Earth debate, uh, if the universe is, uh, you know, roughly 14 billion years old, these distant supernova, say, oh, 10 billion light years, are going to take nine months to go through the light cycle. But if the young Earth creationists are right that the universe is only 10,000 years old, it'll be just 18 seconds. And if the universe is you know, really old, a quadrillion years old, 
uh, those distant galaxies, supernovas, will take seven months. So this is actually an independent way to measure the age of mm -hmm. the universe. And uh, the only assumption you're making is that general relativity uh, reliably describes uh, you know, phenomena uh, in the universe. And my experience, Jeff, is young Earth creationists recognize, uh, they, they will okay. agree that that is the case. So just based on something we both agree on, general relativity, these measurements simultaneously give us an independent handle mm -hmm. on resolving the young Earth uh, versus old Earth uh, debate. Uh, but uh, let me, this is just some books where I talk about this in some detail. <coughs> and looks like one of my slides got eliminated. Uh, let me kind of jump down and see if it's still there. Nope, it got eliminated, sorry. These are your slides. We'll get to them in a minute. But uh, the slides I had up were basically talking about two planned surveys. Mm -hmm. One where they're gonna use a large space telescope that's gonna be dedicated <coughs> to detecting supernova that are unlens, uh, that are more distant than nine billion light years away from us. Okay. And then using the Rubin uh, observatory uh, survey, which is being planned, uh, named after Vera Rubin, mm -hmm. uh, to look at gravitationally lensed supernova. And they're basically saying, hey, we can come up with even just 144 gravitationally lensed supernova, and the Rubin Observatory will be able to do that in less than a decade. Okay. That's an estimate. Uh, but you could also combine it with this uh, planned uh, space telescope which can get you a database above 200. Right. <coughs> Excuse me. They're claiming that we can get a measurement of the cosmic expansion rate when the universe is within its first four billion years of cosmic history. That's accurate to 1%. That would actually rank as the- Which is plus or minus about 0.7 because we're talking 70 is, is the expansion right, rate. Right, so. uh, But that's in line with the very best cosmic expansion rates we get from uh, the, mm -hmm. the cosmic microwave background radiation, the tip of the red giant branch, and the baryon acoustic oscillations. And up till now, the best we've had in that range is plus or minus 10%. Right. So you're literally reducing the error bar from plus or minus 10% to plus or minus 1%. And this really has a potential to give us a handle. Is there a second constant that's governing uh, mm -hmm. dark energy or just one constant and could actually give us some additional insight what's going on uh, with dark matter. So I'm excited. Mm -hmm. This is going to give us a more detailed cosmic creation model and especially I'm excited this can actually give us some insight that we don't have on both dark energy and dark matter. So well, I'd be curious to know whether it reveals more systematic effects or whether it actually tells us about new physics, which, oddly enough, is the same discussion we've been having for the last 50 years on this it issue. Is. <laughs> but, hey, getting a factor of 10 improvement in the I, measurements is going to make a right. big difference. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. Okay. So. Well, and I mean, if you're talking about difficult and challenging projects and uh, the prospect of not getting an answer for decades, well, here, here we are, because, uh, you know, the, kind of the context of why I find this discovery fascinating is we know that to answer questions about the beginning of the universe, we need to have a quantum theory of gravity. And the hard part about that is how do you measure something, or how do you, how do you 
develop theories because we've got lots of quantum theories of gravity out there, but how do you develop measurements that will allow you to discriminate how do you test them? them? Right. Because yeah. the areas where you need gravity tend to not be where you need quantum, and the areas where you've got quantum, tend, gravity tends to be unimportant. And so finding environments where those two play in a way that we can measure is pretty fascinating. And so one of the places where that works out is in black holes. And, uh, you know, we've got, uh, you know, just historically speaking, uh, Einstein's general relativity predicted these things called black holes. We've got a lot of experimental evidence that black holes exist. But one of the fascinating, uh, in my, in my the, the parts of black holes that fascinate me, is this recognition that the centers of galaxies tend to have these massive black holes in them. And so we can't image our galaxy very well, but if you go off and look at distant or other galaxies, this is one called M87, and this is the only actual image I'm gonna show for a while, but it's an actual optical image. What you have is you've got the galaxy up there in the upper right hand or upper left-hand corner, and then you've got this big jet of material coming out. And, and this jet is millions of light years long. And so, you know, you just think how long it takes to make that sort of jet uh, because this matter originates down close to the center, slowly flows out, and it flows at uh, stuff that's moving close to the speed of light. Uh, and that produces some real interesting effects because that's where you can start getting very high energy gamma rays, which was my area of research. And so these uh, active galaxies have been a, uh, a fascinating topic for me for a couple of decades. Um, and to put this into context, this galaxy is 53 million light years away. Right. Yet if you've got a good pair of binoculars and you're in a dark site, you can see this galaxy through your pair of binoculars. That's pretty impressive. It uh, is. That, that uh, shows you how bright this thing is. <laughs> right. Well, and so so uh, this is where uh, one of the first black holes we tried to image, at least as far as supermassive black holes, was this one. And so I'll come back to that in a second. But just to kind of give you a picture of what scientists envision these active galaxies are. So you've got this galaxy there. You've got this jet coming out. And we can go to the next slide. Um, you know, we're kind of kind of zooming in. What you'll find as you get in closer, uh, you know, it almost looks like there's a spiral galaxy, and that's kind of the the idea. You've got this uh, mass in the center. You've got this stuff spiraling around it, um, and the stuff is gas and dust. Gas, and dust, comets, planets, planets, stars, planets, stars, all sorts of stuff like that. But not it's, whole galaxies. No, not whole <laughs> galaxies. You know, th this kind of looks like a galaxy because right. it is a galaxy. And you notice you've got these jets of material. And so as the stuff spirals oh, in, falls right. onto that central mass of stuff, it, it, it gets funneled out into jets. And that's a whole fascinating topic of uh, research anyway. But if we were to zoom in even farther, you notice it's just this bright blob in there. What we expect we're going to see on the next slide is that you get down into the center and there's going to be this black hole. Right. And these are not your ordinary black holes. These are black holes millions, billions, even trillions of times the mass of the sun. And just outside that black hole, you've got the brightest objects in the entire universe. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so when we're trying to take a picture of a black hole, what we're trying to do is to see that black region plastered up against the bright stuff around it that's, that's emitting light. And, you know, I mean, these black holes are not particularly large here. We're talking, uh, yeah, actually, I don't know the sizes off the top of my head, but, you know, they're on the order of light minutes and light days across. So it's, it's very small objects. Um, and you've got this challenge of trying to find a 
dark spot in the midst of this incredibly bright light. And so it's just technologically a very challenging issue. Um, and Especially at that distance. Especially at those distances. And, uh, you know, what's fascinating about this or what, what we do is, you know, when one of the reasons active galaxies are, are interesting to look at is that they tend to give off a lot of x-rays, a lot of gamma rays, and they have a lot of different properties to them and they're hard to do. And basically what astronomers think are going on is you've got this big disk of material, you've got the jets coming out, uh, you've got this big massive black hole in the center. And what the active galaxy is going to look like is largely dependent on the orientation you have towards it. So if you're looking at it kind of from the side, you're going to see the galaxy and a lot of the, the interior radiation. That's going to give you a lot of x-rays and such. Whereas if you're looking kind of down the jet axis, you've got these... Uh, shock waves that are moving towards you at close to the velocity of light, you're going to get uh, the, the photons that are there are going to get upscattered to higher energies. You're going to get x-rays and even gamma rays. And so uh, one of my one of the objects that I was looking at in graduate school, Markarian 421, was one of these active galaxies where we think we're looking not directly down the jet, but kind of just a little bit askance of the jet. And that's where we get to see these gamma rays that have uh, you know, if, if this ener this light has an energy of one, x-rays at the doctor have an energy of about 10,000. The Hulk was exposed to or gamma rays energy of about a million. Well, these have an energy of a trillion. You know, mm -hmm. so these are some of the more energetic processes in the universe. And this is what astronomers are trying to get a better picture of is that central region, which is the heart of these AGN, which drives all this activity. But it really helps that what's going on is that stuff is being drawn into the black hole. Mm -hmm. It's being converted into energy uh, with 10 to 40% efficiency, which gives you this really bright donut uh, around the black hole, and it helps to define the black hole boundary. Right. So that's why they want to look at these active galaxies, because you're mm -hmm. going to have much brighter ring around the black hole then you feel not if it's not consuming very much. Well, and, and it, especially at the at where you've got these black holes because you've got a uh, the more stuff that's being consumed, you've got this region where you do have a lot of light, but you also have this mix of quantum and gravitational effects going on. And so, if we can get a really sharp image of the event horizon, right, that would allow us to begin to probe these quantum gravity regimes. Now, right. the challenge we have is. One, and even getting an image of this, and if you go to the next next slide, these are the two objects that we've been able to image. M87, which is this galaxy that's 53 million light years away, that's on the left, um, and Sag A star, which is the black hole at the center of the Milky Way galaxy. And to put this in context, the one on the left took a whole year's worth of measurements to get that image. This one here took five years' worth of measurements. So, well, I think they take about the same number of measurements, but the analysis took a whole lot longer on right. the one on the right. Right. And, uh, you know, some, some interesting things, you know, say, wow, okay, we've got two black hole images. They look basically the same. A couple of things that are important to point out. One is that the uh, black hole on the left is about a thousand times larger than the, or a thousand times more massive than the black hole on right. the right. right. So, uh, you know, roughly six billion times the mass of the sun for M87. Roughly four billion times the mass four of the million. sun. So I said million. 
It's four million. Yeah, four million. Correct. Yeah, four million okay. is what I wanted. Whatever I said, it's four million. <laughs> yeah, um, is the one on uh, the galaxy on the right. right. And and what I found interesting is that just the way it was described. So the Event Horizon Telescope, uh, people announcing this says today the Event Horizon Telescope collaboration is delighted to share with you the first direct image of the gentle giant in the center of our galaxy. Right. Because it really is gentle. It is. Uh, you yes. know, when, when you look at M87, uh, you know, again, it's just a billion times more massive, which means it's cons it's going to be consuming a lot more fuel, which is going to emit a lot more X-rays, gamma rays, all the stuff that's going on. Uh, whereas at the center of our galaxy, 400, 4 million, it's just, it's a lot quieter, not as much of that's going on. And so it, it makes it a less active, active galaxy, if you will. But fortunately, it's a lot closer. It is a lot closer. You know, so you're talking the difference between 53 million light years and 26,000 light years. Right, right. Which you naively think, okay, 53 million, 26,000, even a factor of a million in the di or a factor of a thousand in the mass, you'd think, okay, it'd be much easier to get an image of the one that's closer. But the challenge in that is that um, with a massive black hole like M87, it is much less dynamic in that stuff around it is changing less, more, more slowly. So if you were to take the black hole around M87 and allow a photon to travel around it because the gravitational pull of, or the gravitational uh, warping of space-time in the vicinity of M87 will cause the photon to go in, a, in, a, in an orbital path, it will take days for it to get around M87. For Sag A star, you're talking seconds or yes. minutes. And which, when you now are thinking about, you've got these radio tel telescopes distributed across the world. You've got them out in Hawaii, you've got them in North America, you've got them in South America, down at the South Pole, you've got some over in Europe. Um, all of these telescopes are looking at the, the radio waves coming from these objects. Um, in M87, you can look for hours and even a day or two at a time, and not much is going to change. Whereas you look at Sag A star, and on the scale of a few minutes, things are just going to change pretty dramatically. And so that presented a very large analytical challenge. How do you analyze the data to get the image out? And so uh, the way the authors uh, described it is liking in it, likening it to uh, listening to a piece of music where some large number of keys are not played, or large number of piano strokes are played in there. Um, the more you listen, the more you can kind of fill in. Uh, and so that's what they're doing. They're taking a whole bunch of images. Each one is missing a number of pieces, but they're saying, all right, this is likely what it looks like. And you keep adding more and more pieces in there and you get more and more of a picture. And so that's what they're able to do with that Sag A star. Why it took five years instead of a couple years to uh, like with M87. And what you end up, whereas with M87, you're likely getting, this is the way it looked with uh, Sag A star you're getting a runner on a time lapse or a long exposure. You're going to get blurs. So it's probably th that very well could be three blobs that have just, or the same blob that's moving around and brightened in various places. So, yeah, and when they published the paper, they said this is an initial image. Right. <laughs> so uh, they're going to continue observations because the real goal, as you pointed out, is to get a sharply distinct uh, black circle where they can actually make a measurement on the distance from the center of the black hole mm -hmm. of the event horizon. Right. And as you can see with M87, uh, you're much further along in that uh, endeavor than you are with right. the 1NR. But, well, yeah. and, and what, what it strikes me, I mean, there's a, there's a really cool part about this, which is fascinating, that I see. It's like 
if you think of what we're imaging here, it's something that is very small, thousands if not millions of light years away, and we're able to take an image of a shadow, if you will, of uh, this very bright region and allow us to see the black hole. So we see the, the shadow of the black holes there, but, so, I mean, you know, it's just an impressive technological accomplishment. I don't, nothing I say, I don't want anybody to take anything away. It's just like, this is really cool. But if you ask the question, what is it going to take to be able to test quantum gravity? <laughs> this is really disappointing <laughs> because it's, it just shows you how hard it is and how hard the problem is and how far away we are from getting the data we really want. Yeah, but, you know, reading the papers, Jeff has said, you know, this is really kind of like an appeal for funding. Fair because, point, okay. I mean... Linking together all these radio telescopes, you got a resolution 4,000 times better than the James Webb Space Telescope. Mm -hmm. But there's really no potential to improve upon that unless you get a radio telescope out in space. And right. people have been talking about that a long time. Why don't we put a small radio telescope far away from the Earth and use that to extend the baseline of the telescopes we have here uh, on the Earth? And... Uh, you know, if you put the radio telescope far enough away, you could probably increase the resolution here by a factor of 100 times. That's fair, but in, in principle, you need not just one of them because that only gives you one baseline on that. You need baselines to get all the way around it, and so it's right. not just one you're putting out there. It's multiple ones you're putting out there. If you there. really want to get a good image, that's what you got to do, right? But, but that's the sort of – I mean, this is – this is what I, one of the things I love about science. You know, I even remember this when they announced the WMAP results uh, when I was working over at UCLA. It was like they came in and there's there's this there's this palpable tension between two things. One, we want to know that we've gotten things right in our cosmic microwave or cosmic uh, picture of the universe, and that's what WMAP, the data from WMAP, said. Yeah, we largely have everything right. And so there's that one tension of wanting to show that everything's right, and then the other tension of showing that there's something new and, and interesting to investigate. And so I see that here as like, yeah, we want to uh, confirm what we know, but we really need to get much, much better pictures, much better technology, much better imaging before we can really weigh in on this. And so, uh, you know, I, just as kind of one of the things that this plays into my mind is that often quantum gravity models are appealed to to say, oh, there's no beginning. I think that's great, interesting research. But to say, well, we've got this quantum gravity model that says there's no beginning, therefore we don't have a beginning. Well, we don't know whether that model is correct or the one that has a beginning is correct. And so before we say, well, just because I can do this, that doesn't mean I can throw out a beginning. Because, you know, honestly, if you're given objective assessment, a lot of the, the 20th and 21st century has been astronomers and cosmologists and scientists saying, well, here's a way there isn't a beginning only to find out once we were able to do the further research that, lo and behold, the best models still have a beginning. And so that's what I expect to happen with quantum gravity. It just may be a century before we actually get the data that allows us to measure it. Well, I think it's going to take a century <laughs> to get too. those kinds of tests if we're doing it strictly with ground-based telescopes. If we can actually get an array of small radio telescopes, say a million, two million um, miles away from the Earth, mm -hmm. now we've got the potential to get the data in five or 10 years. So the question is, do we wait a century or two, uh, or do we come up with a few million dollars 
to get some small radio telescopes. I think that's more than a few million dollars. Uh, but well, <laughs> maybe a few billion possibly in there. Because Well, just launching them out there is a, quite a bit of a challenge as well, or yeah, an expensive endeavor. I so. actually think you can do it probably for about 10 to $15 million total because you don't need to send big radio telescopes out. The real challenge, however, is you're going to need better clocks because the farther away these things are, you say ten million. I'm working on a project where we're flying a balloon experiment, trying to find dark matter, and we're at ten million, and we're a, considered a pretty small project. I, I think it's going to be more than ten million just on the launch cost. But well, I mean, uh, you have to put it in comparison. The idea of sending a spacecraft uh, to uh, Europa to drill down through 26 miles of ice to send a little video camera there to swim around and see if it can find interesting stuff in the subterranean ocean. That's $2 billion total. So we're no, looking at something I, a lot less sophisticated than fair that. Fair point. No, yeah. I, I agree there. And when you, that, that's, that's one of these interesting challenges that scientists run into is everything has a cost and a benefit. And, uh, you know, you have to ask the question, is it better to go to Europa and find out, you know, what's going on there? Or is this a more important measurement? Right. Yeah, depending on which area of physics you are, you're going to get, you well, may get a different answer I haven't taken into account inflation. <laughs> Fair point. But I too. remember looking at this a decade ago where they said, hey, for a few million dollars, we can get a radio telescope far away from the Earth. Right. And yeah, take into account inflation. Maybe that needs to be pushed up. Uh, well, if you have to put 100 of them out there, now we're talking a billion dollars. Now we're talking a billion dollars. <laughs> but, but if you're talking, you know, sending up maybe four. Yeah. Because even before, you can make a substantial improvement on this. Mm -hmm. So, because uh, you just put four. I mean, I've done radio right. astronomy where you're working with just three or four telescopes. You can still get a pretty good image if you distribute them just right. No, that, that's, that, that's a good point. So you don't think you need 100, but you are going to need you know, three or four. And, uh, yeah, it's going to take some money, but the bottom line is we can get back significant results mm -hmm. uh, with, within a decade, maybe five years, right. as opposed to waiting one or two or three centuries. Well, and, you know, and since astronomers <laughs> don't live one or two or three centuries, I think we're more motivated. Yeah, let's get this done in a decade. <laughs> or, or, you know, just as we were talking about with your discovery earlier, there may be more creative ways where we can get insight at least earlier that tells us what way to go. Because part of the problem is, yeah, this may actually solve or give us an answer to the problem, but it may be that's the only thing it does. There may be better ways to invest that money by getting insight into what the answer might be. Well, you know, there's other benefits. I mean, I talked about this uh, black hole a couple of weeks ago on Star Cells and God and just saying, Focusing on the black hole in our galaxy and the one in Ambienes, these are the two that are easiest to measure. Mm -hmm. But they're not even certain they can get a third candidate. Uh, but in addition to testing quantum gravity models, it tells us a lot of really interesting details about what's going on in the center of our galaxy. Right. And this actually has an impact on life on Earth. Oh, absolutely. Because, I mean, this thing's only 26,000 light years away, so... Well, and, and it is. It's a very quiet for for how massive it is it's it's a it's not a particularly quiet. massive black hole but even at that it's a quiet black hole which means our galaxy has much less harmful radiation in it than it would and there's already a lot of harmful radiation in our galaxy earth just shields us pretty well from it well so. like one image i showed two weeks ago is of these huge x-ray bubbles that we can see around the uh, mm -hmm. sagittarius a indicating hey the black hole wasn't always as quiet as it right, is now. Exactly. <laughs> there was a massive eruption two million years ago mm -hmm. uh, that would have made a uh, 
global civilization impossible. Right. So it's more evidence. We happen to be here at the right time in the history of our galaxy. Amen. <laughs> but uh, getting more measurements on that, I think, would be insightful. I agree. It's the first time that I've actually seen some numbers uh, demonstrating, well, how much uh, is our supermassive black hole in our galaxy consuming? I mean, we had guesses on the diet, mm -hmm. but now we got numbers telling us exactly how much it's consuming right. on a per year basis, and it's phenomenally low. Right. So compared to M87, which is gobbling up huge amounts of matter. So well, and, and you know, as you said, there's there's kind of two candidates for doing this: one that's really massive, really far away; one that's really quiet, really close by. That's. Uh, <laughs> It's really good we're not living around M87. That would be very problematic. So. Well, some astronomers have quipped, if our galaxy was consuming, um, if our massive, supermassive black hole was a lot more active, our job would be easier to image the... <laughs> but, it would be, but I'm not sure we'd be here to do it. So. We wouldn't be here to do it, right? So, you know, thank God that it's difficult to measure. <laughs> yes. So. Well, that's what I have to, to bring today, Hugh. Well, very good. And I uh, just want to encourage all of you that are uh, watching this episode, uh, you know, do uh, view our past episodes on Star Cells and God on our YouTube channel, Reasons to Believe YouTube channel. If you're not already a subscriber, uh, please subscribe. And your gateway to all the social media outlets at Reasons to Believe is RTB underscore official. Uh, so take advantage of that. And yeah, if you got questions on this, uh, feel free to contact Jeff on his Facebook and Twitter page. And likewise, you're welcome to do that with me on my Facebook and Twitter page. Thank you for joining us.